Well, good day, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today and for joining into listening wherever you are listening from or joining us here at the church. Today, we're continuing our third look at the Christian scriptures. Every person has a worldview, and if you've known me, particularly in this setting, this is something I talk about often because it's so important to understand this. If we want to engage people as the church of Christ and lead them into faith with Jesus. A worldview is simply how people make sense or fail to make sense of the world around them. A worldview comprises the ideas, the convictions, opinions, and perceptions that govern everything we do. How we treat our neighbor, how we perform at work, how we do in school, who we marry, if we have children, how we raise those children, whether our lives have purpose, what happens as we age, all of these and many more fundamental questions are answered through our worldview. Examples of worldviews are the Christian worldview, which of course most of us espouse to here today, the atheistic worldview, the agnostic worldview, people who are honest enough to say, I don't know if there is a God, but I largely live as if though there's not one. Naturalism, that somehow everything that we see in the universe explains itself completely. Hinduism and humanism, which I often say is the second oldest religion in the world. And to be sure, there are many, many more. For the past couple of Sundays, we've looked at the Bible as God's revelation and why we can trust the scriptures. For the next few Sundays, we are going to examine what the Bible has to say about some key subjects in our existence. At the very least, we will be looking at what the Bible has to say about humanity, purpose, and destiny. You see, to be relevant and meaningful, I am convinced that all worldviews must coherently answer these four basic questions, origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Origin being, where did we come from? How are we here? Meaning, does life have any ultimate purpose? Morality, is there a set of rights and wrongs that we ought to follow? And finally, destiny, what happens when we die? Today we'll be examining the Christian worldview to answer the first question, where did we come from? And what does that mean? How are we here And what does it mean that we specifically have been created by God? And to do this, as you might guess, we will visit the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. What I believe is my favorite book in all the Bible, our roots, our origins, a book through which and by which we understand every other event in Scripture. This is Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. We'll visit some more of that opening scripture here in just a moment. On Christmas Eve, though, I might remind you, some of you remember this. Christmas Eve 1968, the United States made history as the first manned mission to the moon blasted into the great beyond. The Apollo 8 spacecraft flew into orbit in the massive cosmos above a tiny speck in the vast universe that you and I not only call Earth, but we call home. 
And as the astronauts soared across the dark side of the moon, they were given a glimpse of our planet which only a small handful of people have had the opportunity to see. These astronauts saw the blue marble sphere of Earth bejeweled with the pure whiteness of the clouds. They saw the continents adorned with lush vegetation and towering mountains. They saw the oceans sparkle in the light of the sun that was shining some 93 million miles away. And it was at this solemn moment that no exhortation from any textbook, no smooth or thematic line from any poet, and no verse from any lyricist could lend these mans the words to say to describe the awe and wonder that so gripped their souls. They could find only one passage, one refrain to capture the moment that had previously only lived in the imagination of dreamers. Over the radio waves of an anxious and watching world shot forth the only words to describe this event as the lunar module pilot William Anders read, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that's where we start looking at our scripture today. When we open the Bible and we read these opening lines and these first stories, we come to the Bible knowing there is a God. The Bible makes no attempt to prove God's existence. There are many good and strong philosophical and logical reasons to believe in God, and yet the Bible does not make any elaborate arguments for God's existence. However, it does tell us how we can know Him, how we can know He exists. The Bible tells that we can know God exists because of what we see in all of the created world. In Psalm 19, the psalmist said, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. In the New Testament, Paul would echo this in Romans, Romans 1.20, as he said, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that all people are without excuse." It is the understanding that there must be a purposeful intelligence that created this world because the world shows both purpose and intelligence. And so we come to the Bible believing it is the place where God has spoken to man perfectly and sufficiently and comprehensively. As we've referenced the past couple of Sundays, we believe as Christians what is recorded in Paul's second letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, as he penned these words, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. We believe the Bible must be understood as straightforward and true according to its literary context. Particularly in the book of Genesis, sincere Christians often struggle with how to view certain stories and events. And those who want to make fun of Christians and make a mockery of us often will use Genesis to do so, to try to bring us down by claiming that science and Christianity are incompatible and they don't mix. But it's helpful to remember that the Bible is much more than a book. It is a library of books and books written in many different literary forms. Some portions of the Bible give a historical account. Others are poetic and some are prophetic. But in Psalm 119 we read, Therefore all of your precepts, God, concerning all things I consider to be right. And there's wisdom in that. With great confidence here, this psalmist proclaimed the inerrancy of God's word. God's word is right, not wrong. 
and it is right concerning all things. So when the Bible gives us history within its pages, it is right and accurate and true. The events actually happened as described. When the Bible gives us poetry, it is right and it is true. And the experiences, the emotions, the feelings, the pathos for these individuals who wrote these psalms were true and speak to the human experience. When the Bible gives us prophecy, it is right and it is true. The events described will come to pass just as it is written. And when the Bible gives us instructions, it is right and true. It truly does tell us the will of God and the best way of life. And when the Bible tells us God, it is right and true. It reveals to us his nature and the heart and mind of God as much as we can comprehend as humans. And if we don't approach the Bible this way, then we can only come to it with how we feel about the text. We decide what is true or false, making ourselves greater than the Scripture that is before us. And though the teachings of Scripture certainly have many applications, at the end of the day, they only have one true interpretation. Sometimes the interpretation is very easy to understand and very obvious to discern, and sometimes it's not. But God certainly meant something with the text revealed to mankind, and he helps us unlock that truth through his Holy Spirit. And so while the Bible is not a science book, when it speaks of explicit scientific things, we can rest assured that it speaks the truth. Therefore, when visiting the topic of mankind, of humanity, of humans, and what the Bible has to say about us, we must start here with this glorious and foundational truth that God has been, always was, and always will be. On this, we build everything else in the Christian worldview. And the Bible, indeed, has much to say about humanity. So I will now draw our attention to what is really the de facto scripture on the creation of mankind, a beautiful poetic description of your creation and mine in this epic creation narrative. This is on down still in the first chapter of Genesis, beginning in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. One of the first things that stands out to us in this scripture is that very famous phrase, let us make man in our image. An understanding of who man is, who we are, begins with knowing that we are made in the image of God. You and I, mankind, humankind, is different from every other created being. 
The classic Latin phrase for this is imago Dei, the image of God, and it defines both what and who we are before God. There is an unbridgeable gap between human life and animal life. I've had the privilege of being able to teach science in my education career, one of my favorite things to teach, but I never referred to humans as animals, even though this is a common teaching in educational circles. Though we are biologically similar to certain animals, we are distinct in our moral, intellectual, and spiritual capabilities. We are created in the image of God. Animals are not. And this presents to us the foundational teaching that human human life has intrinsic value. We often think of quality of life. Some people believe that a person's value should be measured by the quality of life they experience, their physical abilities, their mental capacity, their economic contributions. This is an immensely dangerous philosophy of life that has wickedly crept its way into the minds of men. But human life has inherent, intrinsic, inseparable value separated from inequalities we may put on life because human life is made in the image of God. Christians must be on the front lines of preserving life, whether that life is in the womb of a mother, a person that is severely disabled, or a person that is well advanced in years and even debilitated. The Bible teaches the value of human life from conception to the grave. And as humans, mankind alone possesses personhood, morality, and spirituality. Furthermore, these are aspects to the idea that we are made in the image of God, that this personality that you and I possess has knowledge, feelings, and a will. And this sets, once again, man apart from other parts of creation. We are able to make moral judgments. We have a conscience. We are made for communion with God. And while I certainly believe that other creatures have been created for a function in God's created order, you and I have the unique and pinnacle ability to commune with God, to have fellowship with Him, to know Him in a personal and intimate way. Not only does this distinguish us from other parts of creation, but this is also a distinctive part of a Christian worldview. God is not some distant deity, but He desires fellowship with us and graciously provides the way for that to happen. So in our image, as we read here, does not mean that God has a physical body. The Bible clearly teaches that God is spirit. Certainly, though, God became man and dwelt among us in Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. But here, in these words, there is relationship between the terms image and likeness. It's marvelous to think about. We possess many of the capacities that God possesses as a result of being made in His image and in His likeness. We are creative. We have a sense of humor. We can hate sin. We can show grace and mercy and forgiveness and goodness to others. We can be faithful. We can love and share this love with others, and our love can grow and increase. All of these and so many more are exemplified, albeit in a perfect and holy way, by Jesus Christ. And so we read here that God also made male and female. Male and female, he created them. Now this passage of Genesis gives us an overview of God's creation of man. And in Genesis 2, 
we will see more thoroughly explained how exactly God created male and female. In Genesis 2, God creates woman, Eve, from Adam's side. And Adam gives a brilliant understanding of who Eve is and her connection to him. He says, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. They were one, but they were not the same. Flesh of my flesh. Adam understood that there was this essential oneness in his relationship to Eve. And this point is so important that it is referred to several times in the New Testament, including a very beautiful passage on marriage in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 5, as Paul wrote, Husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. Now many in our contemporary world boldly proclaim, often with vicious vehemence, that there is no difference between men and women. However, God has created men and women to be different, and since he created them, the differences here are good and meaningful and purposeful. Men are not women, and women are not men. One of the most tragic happenings of our culture's depravity is the degree of confusion among many people in the insistence that altering God's design is good and necessary for happiness. We spend our time arguing if man is superior to woman or woman is superior to man, but God did not create us in this way. A man is absolutely superior at being a man. A woman is absolutely superior at being a woman. But when a man tries to be a woman or a woman tries to be a man, you have something that is not in God's design and created order. God has created us, particularly in marriage, to be complementary toward one another. And so in Genesis 1 we read, Then God blessed them and he gave them a task, a job to do. He said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion. We fulfill God's intentions of man's exercise and dominion over the earth. This is inherent in this command that we should be fruitful and multiply and we are to be good caretakers, gentle stewards of what God has given us and use the resources that we have for good. And so God steps back and he looks at everything that he has made and he proclaims that it is very good. That was his final analysis of his work in creation. And at the time, it was entirely good. There was no death, no decay on earth at all. At all. And mankind, humans, we are the pinnacle and prize of God's creation, eternally valuable, created in the image of God. And so some takeaways from what we have looked at to really begin to answer this question, what does God have to say about humanity, is a reminder of God is personal. God is personal. When you look at the story of origins in the book of Genesis from the very early sentences, we see God involved in a very deep relation with Adam and Eve. God created a stunning world with a life-sustaining ecosystem. He created marvelous animals, with waters, sky, and land. But once again, his last creative act was his most special as he formed what he loved the most, you and me. Just as parents look with awe and wonder at a newborn child, so God looked at Adam and later Eve as his most prized creation. We read that mankind, once again, was created in the image of God. 
And when we read that phrase that we were made in his image, we often gloss over the stunning and amazing implications that it contains. Once again, it does not necessarily mean that we look like God physically because God is spirit, but that we share his attributes. We share the attributes of God. But the story of humanity quickly shifted. Mankind fell. Sin entered the world. Adam and Eve wanted all the benefits of the Garden of Eden without following the rules set by God. Desiring to be like God, they disobeyed and mankind fell. But even after the fall, we see God taking the first initiative to restore that broken relationship. As God is walking in the garden, he asks, Where are you? Where are you to Adam and Eve? And I believe this is one of the questions that was asked to drive home the impact of what had happened. Obviously, God, who is omnipotent and omnipresent, knew where Adam and Eve were physically. But God asked to expose the reality of where Adam and Eve were spiritually. One of the saddest phrases in the Bible came with the realization that man's relationship with God was no longer pure and undefiled, but had been separated by the wall of sin. But again, God took the initiative. Jesus came and took the wrath of God, the judgment of God on the cross, to restore that broken and severed relationship. And our relationship with God as followers of Jesus Christ is personal and intimate, and He's always there to experience the joy of life and to carry us through the moments of suffering and pain. A story that I tell so often happened nearly 10 years ago in the summer, and I believe most of you have even heard me tell it before, but it's one of those punctuated moments in life that has had such an impact on me. I don't know that it would have had the same impact on you, but certainly it has deeply affected my worldview. During this summer, we had the opportunity to take a mission trip to what is called the International Village around Atlanta, Georgia. This area, if you're familiar with it, is one of the most ethnically diverse areas in the world where there are some 140 ethnic groups living within just two square miles. And while we were there, we visited a Hindu temple that was located in a mall area to build relationships with some of the other religious leaders there to open doors to share the gospel. And, though, and this location was odd, of course, in this mall, but when we entered, our noses were greeted by the smell of musk and sandalwood with all of the burning incense. At the front, there was an altar with, three main, with the three main Hindu deities, and they were decorated ornately with gold and silver plating, eloquently displayed and positioned there in that area. But the thing that struck me most was an object that I didn't notice at first. You see, positioned in the middle of the room was a large bell that hung down from the ceiling. A rope was attached to the hammer or clapper inside the bell, and as Hindu worshipers walked in, they would clasp the rope and ring the bell. Our group asked one of the Hindu priests what the bell was for, and he responded that when the worshipers walk into the temple, they ring the bell in an effort to awaken the gods. And as I thought of this, my eyes welled up with tears, and I thought of what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 121. He says, I lift my eyes toward the mountains. Where will my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, he will not allow your foot to slip. Your protector will not slumber. Indeed, the protector of Israel does not slumber or sleep. 
I thought of how Jesus does not stand afar, but lowered himself even to become one of us, to become a man, to save us, to show us his love in the most powerful and poignant way. And the last thing I will mention when I close on this question of humans and origin going back to the beginning as we look in the creation story, viewing God in a slightly different way that reveals a beautiful attribute of his personality, viewing God as a gardener, God as a gardener. In Genesis 2, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. Some of you have tended to gardens. You nurture it, and you devote countless hours to ensure that it flourishes. God planted a garden in Eden and desired to provide life, to see it flourish and to thrive and to prune and cultivate all that he created in order to have vibrancy, joy, and a relationship with what he had formed. We can stare into the night sky and experience the awe of what we see, and you and I as humans seem very small by comparison. Knowing that we're but a speck, a pale blue dot in the cosmos, may cause us to ask the question that the psalmist did. The psalms always capture the emotions of the believer, both good and bad. And in Psalm 8, it was asked, When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is man that you remember him, the son of man, that you look after him? You made him a little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. The psalm writer asks a rhetorical question. He knew the answer, but was stunned at the realization that despite all the vastness of the universe, mankind was the apple of God's eye, the pride and joy of all that God had created and had been fashioned with glory and honor by a loving Heavenly Father. So how fitting it was, and I do not think it was a coincidence, that on resurrection morning as Mary came broken to the tomb, that she mistook Jesus for a gardener. What once was lost was now restored as God once again was walking in the garden with the most special possession of his creation, you and me. And Jesus comes to you the same way he came to Mary that morning when she realized the tomb was empty and death had been conquered by the cross. Jesus called her by name. He calls you by name. Because he knit you together in your mother's womb. Indeed, you were fearfully and wonderfully made. Pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, you reveal to us in the Bible the case for human dignity like no other worldview and above all other worldviews. And certainly a 25-minute message will not do it justice to describe what the Bible has to say about humanity, but perhaps at least this is a chip off the, start, uh, the top, a start to what other things that we will learn. And we learn of the purpose for which you created us, and we see your grace, mercy, and love in all parts of creation. May we all know and be able to share with others that we do not find our value and self-worth in our accomplishments, our wealth, our knowledge, our prosperity, or what anyone thinks of us. Rather, we find our value in you, having been created in your image, and we find our purpose and meaning in life for both now and eternity and knowing you, and glorifying you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.